Well, open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. We stepped away last week from Romans to gain some perspective on the current events swirling around us. Many voices vying for your ear to explain it. But there's one place a believer can confidently confidently look, and that's the Bible. In the Bible, God gives absolute clarity as we live in what's called the latter days. And during this time, perilous times, there'll be poisonous men, and that'll demand the people of God look to the Word of God and not flinch, because if you misdiagnose the the days, if you miss God's diagnosis of the days, then you're going to misdiagnose the problem that we face. And you might be tempted to respond at what you see around you emotionally, fearfully, when believers must respond biblically. And when we talk about latter days, literally end times, we know we, we, we think of, of uh, Revelation, very, very end of the, the, the latter days, but it just simply means the period of time between the first and second coming of Christ. Days that are not the beginning days when the Messiah's people, Israel, was being formed. They're, they're not days when, when the Messiah was walking on the earth, whenever he came to, to, to live the life that you should have and, and died, but, but days in which the bridegroom goes away to prepare to receive his bride. And these are the days in which the church is being, being gathered, and these are the days that we minister in, and that should excite you. This morning I want to try to show you why. These are the days when, in which nothing else needs to take place before the Lord's return. And, and when He comes, that will initiate God's final actions, which begin with the rapture of the church and then the seven years of great tribulation, and that ends with His second coming and His glorious kingdom. And that promised kingdom is what we're going to look at in Daniel 7 this morning. Daniel 7, we're going to be looking at two verses, which is verses 13 and, and 14. And while we, we live in dangerous days, I don't want to leave you there. <laughs> there are better days coming when King Jesus is, is going to rule. And this second coming of Christ is when that will, will, will take place. It's the most anticipated event on God's prophetic calendar. It's the Christian's blessed hope. And that's what's foreseen right here in Daniel 7. Daniel 7 is right in the middle of the, of the book, and, and it's the most important chapter of, of, of the book of Daniel. And, and the verses that we're going to look at today are the absolute epicenter of the very center of the book. I mean, these two verses are like the, the nucleus of, of Daniel. Everything it runs up to it and emanates out of it. And Daniel actually has, has two parts. We're parachuting in here, so let me just tell you a little bit about the book of, book of Daniel. There's a, there's a history section that's in the first six chapters of Daniel, and then there's the vision of future events that begins in chapter 7 and goes through chapter 12. And chapter 7 is like the hinge in the book. You're probably more familiar with the history part, with Daniel and his three friends and fiery furnaces and lion's dens. And these stories that we love in the first six chapters are there to actually prepare us for what's coming in the second half of the book, in the visions. Daniel actually has three themes that, that are repeated in the first half of the book and then applied in the, in, in the visions. So God foretells world history. It's a theme. First six chapters show us that God has the ability to foretell world history. Play on words there. It's history that's told beforehand. Not only that, God controls kings. And kingdoms. That's the point of the first six chapters. And then also God delivers His faithful who trust in Him. He reveals his, his coming history in chapter 2 with Nebuchadnezzar's giant statue and, and Daniel 7 with these beasts. And then he, he, he proves that He sets up kings and takes them down uh, with, with Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 and Belshazzar in chapter 5. You remember the writing on the wall? And that he delivers his, his faithful ones who trust in him in chapter 3 in the fiery furnace and chapter 6 in the lion's den. That's what those stories are there to teach us. 
And chapter 7 is the bridge between these past sections and the coming future, and that's where our verses are at. It, it transitions from the historical stories where you learn who Daniel was and, more importantly, who his God is, to the prophetic visions where God supernaturally foretells the future and also his people's deliverance. And by the way, you can't have one without the other. I mean, some people want to divide the Bible up and treat it like a fast food menu. I mean, I'll take one of those and a little of that. I mean, give me the moral stories of Jesus plain, please. No supernatural miracles, no prophecy, and light on the judgment passages too. But you, you must take all of the Bible or none of it. I mean, you can't have Jesus as a good moral teacher if he claimed to be God. Because if he wasn't, then, then he's neither good nor moral. But if he was God, then it should not surprise you that he holds the stars in his hands and that he reveals what's to come in his book. I mean, if he's able to create, he's also able to bring calamity and uncreate. If he's able to cause the seas to gather together, then, then surely he's able to walk on them. If he's able to forgive sins, then he's able to, to know the future, and that's exactly what he shares with us right here in Daniel chapter 7. In chapter 7, the third-person stories that we learned and loved from Bible school fade away and enters this, this first-person accounts of, of visions of great beasts and glimpses of God's throne room in, in, in heaven. In chapter 7 is actually a companion guide of the world history that's already been revealed in chapter 2. Chapter 7 just reveals more details about the coming kingdoms that, that, that were first brought to us in, in chapter 2 through Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Remember Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of a great statue. It has a head of gold, and it goes down to feet of clay and, and, and iron. Chapter 7 is a vision of the same events, just with more clarity. You might think of chapter 2 like, like an undergrad class in world history. Chapter 7 is, is graduate level. Both describe four earthly kingdoms and the kingdom of God that replaces them all and that reigns forever. But chapter 7 is unique because it changes vantage points. Chapter 2 is told by a pagan king. It's from a human perspective. A pagan king has a dream, and this is what earthly kingdoms look like to this pagan king. It looks glorious and large, like a great man, magnificently standing and, and then weakening over time. But chapter 7, the four kingdoms are viewed from heaven, and they look very different. They don't look like a, like a, like a magnificent statue. They look like four unclean beasts, destructive and vile, a lion-like creature, a devouring bear, a speedy leopard, and then, then a, a great indescribable monster all coming up out of the dark sea of time, rising and falling as the winds of heaven stir up these earthly events. And it is this fourth and final kingdom that chapter 7 zooms in on, and it's the most important in, in God's prophetic calendar, the, the final little horn that's described here, which is the kingdom of the Antichrist. And Daniel leaves a gap between the final human kingdom and then the kingdom of Christ. In the book of Revelation, the New Testament actually fills in that, in that gap. I mean, both of these prophetic mountain peaks are clear. There's the last kingdom of men and then the coming kingdom of, uh, of Christ. And we, we like to look at it on a timeline where we can see this point, this point, and the trough. Daniel's looking at it this way. And he's seeing the mountain peaks, but he can't see the valley that's that, that, that's there. And that's a good way to think about Old Testament prophecy. It's like looking at a mountain range from afar where you only see the peaks and not the, not the dells between them. I mean, Daniel leaves out the, the valleys because that's not his purpose. Now, if you've read Daniel's vision, or maybe you, you're even listening this morning, I mean, what we heard this morning was about the throne room scene, but if you go back a few verses, if you ever read Daniel's vision, you, you may think, I mean, Valleys or not, I have no idea what that says. I mean, I mean, if that's you, you hear beasts and horns and winged lions, and you think, I don't get it. If, if that's you, don't feel bad. I mean, frankly, none of us would know what, what, what that means. We wouldn't have any idea if the Bible didn't explicitly tell us, and it does. You don't have to guess. 
the book of Daniel tells us exactly what all this represents. You see, the, the danger the, of prophetic literature is, is some want to draw all kinds of interpretations from, from, from the symbolism, which, which is not the point at all. And what will keep you out of the, the, the prophetic ditch, if you will, is if you stay between these two guardrails. Don't over-interpret things and then understand that imagery is used to describe the indescribable. Don't over-interpret, and this is imagery to try to describe something that, 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 that somebody sees in a vision, and then they're trying to communicate to us. So they would use words and images that, that try, to, try to describe it. And in apocalyptic literature, you hear the word like a lot, like the wings of a lion, like a... Uh, an eagle. It's imagery. Daniel writes down exactly what he saw. It's not allegory, but he uses images to communicate the scenes to us because they're so otherworldly, they're, they're hardly words. I mean, Daniel is not concerned about every feather on the leopard's wings or, or how many eyes are on the little horn. I mean, the vision is not there to fill out our curiosity or prophetic charts. I mean, the vision is to foretell the overarching future so God's people will persevere and be encouraged to remain faithful. I mean, a Jew in Babylon or Rome, a believer in Rome, doesn't care who Vladimir Putin is or whether China is one of the ten horns. But they do care that the God of Daniel knows what's coming and that he will preserve his people. There, there are three scenes that make up this vision. We're, we're in the, uh, the vision part, the detailed vision part that goes through the first 14 verses. And there are three scenes. Let me, let me show them to you. It begins in verse 1. Here's the, the, where Daniel gets the vision. It's in his bedroom, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. And then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Look at scene 2. Here's the, the vision itself. It goes from verse 2 to verse 8. Verse 2, Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. He describes the four beasts. And then the third scene is a vision of the throne room in heaven overlooking all of this happening on the earth. Look at verse 9. This is where we started reading. I kept looking until thrones were set up, Here's God, in the Ancient of Days, took his seat. I mean, the vision that Daniel sees of these beasts actually leaves some questions, which is what the second half of the book is, is all about. And we won't go there this morning. You can read it. It's a specific vision, and it's explained. But, but what we have before us today is this scene of the Son of Man. So after the venue of the dream, in his bedroom, in this vision of these four beastly kingdoms, and the vantage point shifts to the throne room of God, the visitation of the Son of Man comes into view. Verses 13 and 14, which is the climax scene. That's what I want to show you. It's when a divine figure appears in heaven and then visits the earth. And from that, Daniel gives us the heaven's view of the coming kingdom. Son of Man, what we're all longing for and looking forward to. And it begins with his divine entrance. It centers on his royal ascension. And then it concludes with, with his unending reign, which is 13 and 14a and, and b. Daniel begins the vision by, by describing what he sees, four terrifying beasts. And Daniel uh, observes time like a, like a great sea creatures coming out of it, and, and the influence of heaven is described as the wind stirring up time, churning up the great sea, and then rising to the, to the surface of the sea, which is the earth, are, are kings and kingdoms. They, one rises, and then it falls, and another rises at the churning of the sea. And out of this sea, Daniel sees the rise and fall of three empires, the winged lion of Babylon, verse 4, a consuming bear of Medo-Persia, in verse 5, and a swift leopard of Greece in verse 6. And you can read the rest of Daniel and see that's exactly who these people are. But after this third beast descends into the sea of time, Daniel gets the glimpse of a fourth beast that is very different from all the others. 
He doesn't even use a specific animal to describe this fourth beast because he's never seen anything like it before. He doesn't even have an animal to compare it to. He, he says it has great iron teeth and it's dreadful and terrible and it's exceedingly strong. It tears and shatters and crushes everything in its path. And it has many rulers that are part of this, this fourth kingdom. There's ten horns. That's what the horns represent. And in verse 8, Daniel was looking and he sees this little horn arise. While I was contemplating the horns, all of these kings that are part of this, this, this final kingdom, behold, another horn, a little horn, came up among them. Three of the first horns were pulled out by its, by its roots before, before it, and behold, the horn possessed eyes like a man and a mouth, uttering great boasts, blasphemous things. So in the final days of the final kingdom, there, there's one king that rises, grows in power, and once it's large, it takes over, it dominates the other kingdoms, and this little horn has a false mouth, deceives, and it boasts of great things, and it blasphemes God. And as Daniel's sitting there trying to take all of that in, he's stunned at what he sees and, and what he hears. The vantage point suddenly changes. Look at verse 9. He says, I, I kept looking, or uh, as I looked, thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took a seat. So the scene shifts here in, in verse 9. Daniel is catapulted into the very throne room of God, and as his eyes try to adjust as as, as one preacher said, I was listening to, eyes are probably trying to adjust from the dark sea to the blinding light of heaven. His gaze is immediately drawn to the one who's, who's in the center, who's called the Ancient of Days. He's seen there are millions, millions of angels around this one, many thrones. But Daniel is captivated by the one who is the center of it all. He's sitting on a throne of holy fire surrounded by by light emanating from him. And he enters this vision of the very throne room of God that's being prepared for something very specific. Look, if you would, at, at, at verse 10. A river of fire was, was flowing, and coming out from before him, this one that's sitting upon the throne, thousands upon thousands were attending to him, and myriads upon myriads were, were standing before him, and the court sat, and the books were open. Thrones were being set up, and the Ancient of Days is taking his seat. Daniel's dropped in the middle of this event as it's happening, where God is about to hold court. And the Ancient of Days is judging from the books, and he's removing kings. And he's about to give dominion of another. So the idea here is this is happening on the earth, and, and then here's the way heaven is viewing it. Setting up kings and taking them down, and now here this final king is about to be installed. Look at, if you would, at verse 11. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn, that little horn, was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to burning fire. It's like Daniel is, is focused on what's happening on heaven, but there's still something going on on the earth, and he hears this noise in the background. Seeing this vision below him on the earth, almost like a barking chihuahua is this little boastful horn. It's like being engrossed in, a, in an intense movie, and your five-year-old keeps tugging on your shirt while you're, while you're trying to see what's going on. Mom, mom, mom. You finally pay attention to the word. Or, or you, you, you settled into your favorite chair with a blanket and tea and a good book, and just as you get tucked in, your dog starts scratching on the back door. It keeps it up until you finally have to get up and, and let him out. That's what this little boastful ruler is doing on, on, on the earth. Hey, God, look at me. I'm powerful. I, I'm ruling over everything. I'm great. God pays no attention to him until he chooses to, and he just slays him. He throws his carcass into the lake of fire, which burns for forever. I mean, all of the military machinations and strategies that, that you even see playing out right now, when to do what and, and what, that's not the way God's going to do it. It's effortless to him when he wants to remove a king and a kingdom. Exactly what he'll do at the very end with the Antichrist. Not the best thing to do to your dog at the back door, by the way, of 
throw his carcass into a lake of fire. But, but here is an example of how chapter 7 is, the, is like a bridge from history to how these themes are working out, the stories before. I mean, chapter 4 and chapter 5, God judges two earthly kings. You have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Here in this future kingdom, God does that again. The future ruler is, is being deposed, just like those two earthly kings earlier. Verse 12. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. He, he says the previous kingdoms were not destroyed. Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece, they're, they're merged into every empire that, that overthrows them. And this, and this fourth beast is the one that's totally done away with. It's one of the ways we know this event hasn't happened yet. And it didn't happen in 70 AD because the Roman Empire lasted for 100 years after the temple was destroyed. What's described here is the final king, this little horn. And his kingdom is completely removed. Just as God removes kings, he has the authority to set them up again, which is what he'll do next. And here's where Daniel sees this, this, this divine entrance of a new person. After this fourth and final earthly king is removed, he gives that dominion to another one, and we meet him now. Look at verse 13. He says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. Whoever this is, this person is identified in with the sign of clouds. <clears throat> He's identified with the title of Christ. He's described that way of a title that becomes the title of the Lord Jesus. And he bears testimony of closeness with the Ancient of Days. He strides right up to the Ancient of Days. Now, don't miss the order of things here. Verses 11 and 12, there's a courtroom or a judgment scene and in verses 13 and 14, there's a coronation scene where a new king is being crowned. And, and this new king is different from all others. He, he is an everlasting king and possesses an everlasting kingdom, and he has a kingdom that will never end. Chronologically, that kingdom happens after the final earthly kingdom of the Antichrist is destroyed. This little horn is given to the fire. With that, we transition from the kingdoms of men to the kingdom of God. And, and notice the sign... Of this, of this messianic king. His arrival is in heavenly clouds. Verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, this one was coming. I mean, the phrase I kept looking is the ninth time that Daniel uses this in chapter 7. The key is what he sees. The, the phrase, coming with the clouds of heaven, is something that's very specific. The word for was coming is a, is a participle. It, it's Daniel. It's like Daniel's looking and he, and he sees this being moving into the throne room with divine majesty in a very familiar way. A way that would have been very familiar to Daniel and all of Israel. He moves in with the, the glory of God engulfing him like a cloud whenever he comes. Someone coming in the clouds of heaven is always represented as a divine figure in, in Scripture. And God's very presence is identified that way throughout the Old Testament, which is how he makes himself known. I mean, when, when, when God was, was leading Israel in the wilderness, Exodus 31 says the Lord was going before them in, in the pillar of a cloud, the very presence of God going before them. When God inhabited the, the tabernacle, and then the temple, he was manifest in a cloud of glory, Numbers 9.15. On that day, the tabernacle, the tent of testimony was set up, and the cloud covered it. And in Ezekiel, when, when, when God's glory left the defiled temple, it was a cloud that, that, that departed. Ezekiel 10, the glory of the Lord went up from the, the cherub to the threshold of the temple, and the temple was filled with the cloud. It's the same symbol in the New Testament. When Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John, a cloud appeared in heaven whenever, whenever God spoke. Mark 9, 7, And a cloud overshadowed them, and the voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. How are we going to be gathered up with, 
with the Lord when he calls away his church. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. And, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with the Lord in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. I don't think that just means like cumulonimbus clouds. This is the presence of the Lord. And so we shall always be with the Lord. It's no coincidence then that you find the Son of Man entering here in, in glory clouds. J.A. Emerton said, If Daniel 7.13 doesn't refer to a divine being, it is the only exception out of 70 passages in the Old Testament. So whoever this is, he's divine. But he also has a title which provides even more identification. Look at verse 13 again. Here is the, the title. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man, or like a Son of Man. He's coming with the clouds of heaven, and he's described by a title that Christ takes in the future. And both are significant to this person's identity. I mean, the, the phrase here is not a title yet, but, but that comes in the New Testament. Here's the description of uh, that, that Daniel gives to him, that gives way to the title. Remember our symbolism. Notice it says one like a son of man, which literally means one like a human being. I mean, here is the vision that Daniel can finally understand. I mean, when he saw beasts before, he, he used all kinds of imagery to describe those earthly kingdoms, winged lions, and then that final beast, he had nothing to describe it, but can't even find an animal similar, but this figure, this figure is recognizable. He has the attributes of a man, but he's not a man because he's coming in glory clouds. He resembles a man in his form, but he's unlike a man in the fact that he's coming in clouds of glory like God and unapproachable. The one who dwells in unapproachable light, this one just walks right up to him, floats right up to him while this ancient of days is on his judgment throne. He strides right up to the throne of God. You tell me a human being that can do that. This is not Moses or Israel or Michael the archangel or anyone else. This person is both divine as well as having human traits, both God and man. Sound like anyone you know? I hope so. Not only that, whoever this son of man is, all the nations worship, in verse 14, would be worshiping nation or Israel. Israel has a prominent place in the kingdom, but worship is ascribed to God alone. But there's an even more specific reason why we know exactly who this is. It's because future revelation tells us. The Gospels, the book of Acts, and even Revelation, none of that two apocryphal writers, identify this as a messianic verse. And Jesus Christ is identified as the Son of Man. But if you want even more evidence, Jesus himself says that this is him in an undeniable way. In Mark 14, after Jesus is arrested, he's brought before the Sanhedrin. This is when he's led down the Kidron Valley. He goes before the Jewish court, this kangaroo court in the middle of the night, and the religious rulers are bringing false witness against him. And as they do that, Jesus remains silent. Here's the scene in Mark 14. For many bore false witnesses against him, but their testimony did not agree, which had to happen. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. And yet, even about this, their testimony did not agree. And so the high priest is silent. He, he, he's got his cronies bearing false witness, and it's fallen apart. It, the trial is about to, to, go, to go south. And so he gets frustrated and he stands up in the middle of the trial and he demands that Jesus identify himself. It, it, it says, and the, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it, what is it that these men testify against you? But he... The Lord remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Matthew's version says that the high priest actually puts, 
puts the Lord under an oath when he asks it. I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. And the question that Jesus has deflected publicly until now, he answers under oath, invoking God's name. And look at what he says to tell us who you are. Here's the answer of the Lord. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and and coming with clouds of glory. And so bound by the law not to bear false witness, Jesus answers truthfully and directly, and he quotes from Daniel 7.13. It's a combination here of Daniel uh, of Psalm 110 and Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And the response of the high priest actually tells us what his interpretation of Daniel 7 was. Look, look at what he says. He knows exactly what Jesus is saying. Daniel 14. The high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. Quoting Daniel 7, 13. What's your decision? And they all condemned him, saying he was deserving of death. I mean, they understood that he was claiming deity for himself. This passage in Daniel is not about an angel or the nation of Israel in Christ's day, and it's not now. It's about the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Daniel 7.13 is the most quoted verse from Daniel in all of the New Testament, which tells you everyone knew these passages spoke about a messianic king. And that's why it's used so many times for the Lord, the divine figure with human attributes who's a worthy figure as well. Look at verse 13. It says, And he, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, the second half of verse 13, and was presented before him. Now you don't get ahead of ourselves because good hermeneutics interprets a passage based on progressive revelation, meaning that you want to understand what Daniel understood right here, not what is told to us in the, in the future. The Bible's gradual in, in what it reveals, unfolding God's plan over time. So what Daniel understood was, was based on what God revealed to him in this time, and that's, say, less than maybe what the disciples would, would have known, or what John would have known in, Re- in Revelation. Here, even with what Daniel understands, here is a God-man being presented to God, the Ancient of Days, who's already on the throne. I mean, it's one of the unique places in the Old Testament where the first and second person of the Trinity are found in the same scene. But this scene is actually seen with greater detail after the cross in, in Revelation 4. Why you turn over to... Revelation 4. Keep your finger in Daniel 7 because we're, we're coming back there. Turn over to Revelation 4, a passage that you probably know well. Here's another vision of the identical scene. One preacher said, reading them both was like John and Daniel were on opposite sides of the throne room. They just can't see each other for all the angels in the middle. Daniel's looking at it from this side of the cross And John the Revelator is looking at it from this side of the the cross. Look at Revelation 4.2. Same scene. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on that throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. So there's one throne in the middle and a bunch of thrones around it. Look at verse 5. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. Verse 6. Before the throne there was like a sea of glass and crystal blinding, radiating light. Sounds a lot like Daniel 7, doesn't it? God on his throne, other thrones are set up around it, and he's radiating his glory everywhere. Look at Revelation 5.1 because the scene continues here. we get two verses in Daniel 7. You have two chapters of Revelation. Here's the Son of Man being presented to the Ancient of Days. Revelation 5.1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within 
and on the back, sealed with seven seals, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And they look, and they can't find anyone. Not on the earth, not on any of those four kings like in Daniel. I mean, here, all of the earth and all of heaven is, is searched. Verse 5, one of the elders said, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed. He's conquered so that he can open the scroll and, and on his seven seals. There, there's the presentation presented to the Ancient of Days. Now look at verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though he had been slain. So here on this side of the cross... John actually sees the Son of Man that ha with the marks of the slaughter already on him. Daniel sees him from this side. There are no marks. And here in the same scene, the marks of the cross are upon this one. And look at verse 7. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand who was seated on the throne. There's the judgment and the kingdom that he was granted. The scroll is the title deed of the earth. And then what follows is worship and a kingdom. Look at verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before him and they sang a new song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seal for you were slain, for your blood ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and nation and people, people and nation in you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Turn back to Daniel 7, making you work a little bit this morning. Exactly what Daniel sees. He just sees it from this side. And he sees it without the valley in between. Daniel sees a king crowned by God himself, and this, this one crown is a royal figure. He's a king, and he's given a kingdom. So Daniel sees next his, his, his royal ascension. Look at verse 14. He's granted dominion and he's given worship. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. Exactly what Revelation says. Three things are bestowed upon this Son of Man. Dominion, which is ruling authority. Glory, which is the honor that accomplishes it or accompanies it, I should say. And a kingdom, which designates the rule in his government. As the four kings of the earth descend and lose their thrones into the sea of time, this king is given all thrones. He has full dominion. He is all honor. And notice he receives a real kingdom, not a spiritual one. All the other kingdoms described in this passage are, are real earthly kingdoms. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. And so when you get to the Messianic kingdom, it makes no sense to switch metaphors to think it's spiritual only. These are real people, all people, in fact. And they're given real worship. They serve him. And it's given to a real king in a literal kingdom consisting of nations. And that's what the people are doing in verse 14. They served him, which is a word that Daniel uses nine times and always means worshiping deity. And this kingdom will be over all the earth. All peoples and nations and languages will will worship Him. They'll serve Him. Now look at verse 14 again, the end of it. And to Him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. But, but notice something else. Understand we're parachuting in the middle here. And I'm giving you this jet tour of Daniel trying to, trying to pull in everything for you, you to be able to, to see this climax scene here. And if you would go back to Daniel 7 and read, or if you would go further and read the rest of Daniel 7, what you'll find is that there are verses and verses about the beasts. And then the second half of Daniel 7 that we won't go to, if you, you go to verse 15 through the end, it's full of detail about this fourth kingdom, the kingdom of the Antichrist. But here, in the climaxing scene, where 
this God-man goes into the throne room and, and receives a kingdom, it's just stated very matter-of-factly. And there are no questions. I mean, Daniel doesn't say, hey, what's going on here? Look at the questions that he asks. Look at verse 19 of Daniel 7. What does Daniel want to know about? Verse 19, Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron, claws of bronze, and devoured, and crushed, and trampled, and the meaning of the ten horns, which were upon its head, and the one horn, the boastful horn, which came up. I mean, Daniel's questions and concerns surround this fourth beast and this little horn, because that's something that hasn't been revealed yet, but it's being revealed to Daniel right here and to the people of Israel. It's new information. But my point is he has no questions about old information. He asks no question about what he sees in this coronation scene of heaven. Why? Because Daniel and every Jew that would have read this book already knew what was happening in this scene. They already knew that God had promised an earthly kingdom and a messianic king. And so there's no explanation necessary. I mean, the idea that there's going to be an earthly kingdom for Israel that never ends and a divine Messiah ruling over it is common Old Testament doctrine. That's why there's no explanation or question here. It's, the kingdom of Christ is not a Christian invention. It, it's not a premillennial adventure. And this is basic Old Testament truth that everyone would have understood. And the New Testament confirms that. It picks up exactly where the Old Testament left off, expecting a Messiah and a kingdom. I mean, John the Baptist came preaching, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. Repent so you can get in the kingdom. I mean, the problem was they thought they were already ready for the kingdom. And when Jesus arrives, the king's on the scene, and he starts up his ministry, and he preaches the same message. The kingdom of God's here. Now, what they didn't know was the gap between the king and his kingdom. They didn't know the gap between the mountain peaks. And so when they try in Galilee to make Jesus the Lord, the king, he refuses, because that's not why he comes the first time. And it becomes evident in the New Testament that while the king has come, the, the earthly kingdom and its reign will, will be delayed. And even after the, the resurrection, the disciples are still looking for a kingdom related to Israel. Acts 1, is now the time you'll restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus' reply says, it's coming. Just for they understood Daniel 7. They didn't know the gap either. So they're expecting the king's here, and now the king. And Jesus says it's, it's not coming right now, just now. It's delayed, even though the king's come, because the king, that king comes the first time to make it possible for men to be citizens through his death on the, on the cross. And then he sends out his messengers between the first and second coming to gather more subjects in. They, they preach the message of, of the king. Come, his kingdom is coming. Repent and believe. Repent of your rebellion and bow before the king. Renounce your citizenship to the kingdom of darkness. Pledge your loyalty to the heavenly king. I mean, that, that's basically what they're saying. That's what's happening in the book of Acts. That's what's still happening. The kingdom is unfolding. Subjects are being gathered between his first and second coming. And the king right now is reigning in our hearts, in the hearts of the, over, the, over our hearts. What do we pray? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's being done right now in our hearts. And we're longing for that kingdom. And when that kingdom comes, it's going to reign over all the earth. And you, you can see that right here in Daniel. The last earthly king is disposed and the heavenly kingdom is, is established. And it's an unending reign. The end of verse 14 shows us its extent. This kingdom is an everlasting dominion and it's also eternal. This one's not going to pass away. Verse 14 again. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That's not a new thing for God to anoint a king and bestow dominion on him. He did that in the Old Testament many times. The, 
the difference about this scene is all of those other kings were anointed on the earth. And this coronation is in heaven. And it grants dominion that's never removed. It's a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. It's everlasting. All those other earthly crownings look forward to this one, this king, this kingdom that will never end. So when's it coming? What will, how will we know when it comes? Well, after listening to Daniel 7, look at Acts chapter 1 and see if you can hear the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say. See if you can hear Daniel 7. It said, after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you watched him go. The disciples are expecting a literal earthly kingdom to be given to Israel. They knew Daniel, they, just like the high priest. And now the king has come, and, and they're expecting what the Old Testament promised would happen, but they get new revelation right here. You pay attention to what the angel said, the symbol in the scene. It says, as a cloud received Jesus out of their sight. what it will be like one day. I either put them to sleep or they leave crying, one of the two. The angel says, you men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing? This same Jesus will come again in like manner. And What's in like manner? He was received in a cloud of glory and he's coming again in a cloud of glory. Just like Daniel foretold, the king will be coronated and will be given a kingdom with a dominion over all the earth, and that kingdom will have no end. And that gappy little horn, which is saying, look at me, God, I'm great, I'm powerful, I have all of the armies of the world gathered. When this king comes, it's going to be like a stink bug. These are the days that we're living in. What Daniel 7 leaves out is the gap. We live between the first and second coming. We're, right now we're between the comings, which means he's coming again. And what we're doing right now is, is, is doing the same thing in the book of Acts. We're saying the king has come and he's made it possible for you to be part of, this, of his kingdom, but you have to come his way. You, you bow the knee to him, you repent and believe. You turn from the other kingdom and, and you're translated into the kingdom of, of, of his dear son. What you have to decide today is it's not if he's coming again, but when he comes again, is he coming as your king or as your judge? Will you be part of the kingdom of men that's judged and, and, and burned in fire, or, or will you enter the kingdom of Christ that, that never ends? And the way you get into that kingdom is different from every other religion in, in the world. It's because this king actually came to us when we couldn't come to him. And he died for his subjects. And then he offers life to all who will repent and believe. I don't know if you remember, you probably do, most of you were alive during 9-11. I mean, some of the exact same things that were being said then are being said, being said now. Um, the reason that 9-11 happened was because America, you know, poked its nose into Islamic affairs in, in, in the other parts of the world. Or it, it had happened because of our foreign policy, Iraq wars or whatever it is. It's our fault that this happened. The same thing that they're saying about Israel today, I mean, because of the Palestinians or this or, or, the, or, or that or the other. And back during 9-11, a reporter asked President Bush's um, attorney general, John Ashcroft, what was the difference between 
his religion, which he was a professed Christian, in Islam. And, and the reporter, not a believer, uh, was what, what was was interpreting what 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 Ashcroft, I think, was saying to Cal Thomas. And basically, if, if these events have the underpinnings of a religious war, I mean, that's what the that's what the Islamic terrorists are saying. Allah is going to reign over all the earth. Christians say that you know Christ is going to come in His kingdom. I mean, what's the difference between these two? I mean, who has the moral high ground religiously? What's the difference between Christianity and all the other religions of the world? And Ashcroft answered it this way: He says the difference between Islam and Christianity is. Islam is a religion in which God requires you to send your son to die for him. Christianity is a faith in which God sends his son to die for you. And that is the fundamental difference between Christianity and every other false religion of the world. This king that could demand all worship and has the right to all worship, leaves the portals of glory and robes himself in human flesh in the incarnation and then stoops all the way down to death, not just death, but death on the cross. And he then freely offers, based on that sacrifice, anyone who will believe in that gospel, that good news, Jew, Gentile, Muslim, whoever will believe, can enter his kingdom by grace alone. That's the difference between Christianity and and every other religion in, in the Bible. And because of that, that same passage in Philippians said, because of that, God highly exalted him. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of God the Father. And one day, he'll reign as king over all the earth. But between his comings, between the first and the second one, the door of merciful grace is open. What you have to decide is what will you do with the testimony of that king? Bow and believe or reject? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for your truth. I confess to you that I am a sinner full of fear some days, full of pride other days, all this remaining flesh you've promised to remove ultimately one day. But Lord, on my best day, on my worst day, that's not where I stand. That's not my hope. My hope is Christ alone. His sacrifice on the cross and His glorious resurrection, my faith is in Him, in Him alone, in His worth alone, and I gladly bow the knee to Him and confess Him as Lord. And Lord, all of us do here this morning, those of us who are believers, those who aren't, can. We love you. Use us to gather more subjects to your coming kingdom, and we say, come, Lord Jesus, come, and reign as King. In Jesus' name, amen.